Our next case is Potts v. Kell et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Associate Justices Jeff Sutherland from Greensboro here for the appellant defendants, Reeves and Associates, and Lynn Reeves. My clients are seated behind me to the far right, also here with my law partner, Richard Andrews. Thank you for having us. If I could, I'd like to reserve approximately eight minutes for rebuttal. If I may, there are principally four issues that we argue about in our briefs, and I'll take them a bit out of order, starting first with what I'll refer to as the UCC issue, which relates to the liquidation of Mr. Reeves' shares in SteelTube. Second, I'll address the punitive damages award as it relates to Reeves and Associates, the accounting firm. Third, I will address the compensatory damages generally as they relate to Mr. Reeves. And then fourth and finally, I'll address the issues relative to the fraud claim as to Mr. Reeves individually. And I will endeavor to provide the pertinent facts, though I know the court has the briefs, that attach to each one of those arguments as I proceed. With respect to the UCC issue, we moved for JNOV and new trial following an eight-day trial with the jury and the business court in Iredell County. And the principal argument on this issue is that the plaintiffs failed to give commercially reasonable notice of the liquidation of Mr. Reeves' 50 percent interest in SteelTube, Inc., or I'll refer to as STI. By way of factual background, Mr. Reeves was a 50 percent owner of that entity. He was an owner for a year and a half, give or take, almost two years. Mr. Reeves purchased his interest for $600,000, which was financed by the gentleman he purchased the interest from, Mr. Lazenby. And Mr. Reeves eventually defaulted on those payments, and the plaintiffs moved forward to repossess them through an assignment of a security interest. As the court is likely aware, Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code as adopted in Chapter 25 requires that a secured party give reasonable commercial notice to a party against whom it's going to foreclose. In this case, that did not happen, and there were insufficient facts for that issue to be presented to the jury. The facts on this issue are fairly straightforward. In January of 2017, January 30th, after Mr. Reeves has defaulted, and this is contained at Trial Exhibit 80, Document Exhibit 832, the plaintiffs, through counsel at Moore and Van Allen, care of Mr. Reeves, excuse me, care of Rick Sharpless to Mr. Reeves, sent a letter saying, we're going to foreclose on your shares. Mr. Sharpless responded, that was trial counsel on Mr. Reeves' behalf. Moore and Van Allen responded to Mr. Sharpless about three weeks later on February 22nd, Trial Exhibit 81, Exhibit 834, advising counsel for Mr. Reeves, again, that they were considering foreclosing on Mr. Reeves' interest. That is the last that Mr. Reeves learns or hears about his interest being foreclosed upon and repossessed until after his interest is sold on the courthouse steps in Iredell County. So in the midst of litigation, 
by the time this sale happens in June of 2017, the parties had been in litigation for approximately six months. There had been communications directly from plaintiff's counsel to Mr. Reeves' counsel, including most notably the January 30th letter at document exhibit 832. So, counsel, I, and I think this may be a theme as we go through a lot of your arguments, but one, one thing about this argument I, I want to understand. So, um, you know, I think you've made a lot of strong arguments that sort of if you were making them to a jury. So, you know, if we had run this simulation 10,000 times, maybe you would have won most of the, the jury trials on this issue. But we're very hemmed in by the standard of review. So if what we're saying is, so the first question I had is, you, do you acknowledge that the reasonableness component there is a fact question for the jury? I would acknowledge that the reasonableness component is typically a fact question for the jury. So is your argument that there wasn't even the more than a scintilla, like the tiny, tiny amount you get to get it to the jury? Or are you saying as a matter of law, it, it was unreasonable? Or what, what exactly is the argument? Uh, our argument, Your Honor, is that there was insufficient evidence of reasonableness for this to go to the jury. Because I think your friend says if that's the argument, uh, you might have the better argument. But more than a scintilla is so easy to meet when you get to, to you know, pass the JNOV and it gets to the appellate courts. And they've just, there is more than a scintilla. It's just you've got a really strong case. So what's your going to be your response to that? My response to that would be um, the commercial credit case, which was a summary judgment case from Judge Duke uh, down in the eastern part of the state, where he was sitting as the trier of fact and found, based upon all of the circumstances, which is what the court is to consider, that it was an unreasonable method of liquidation. And, and I think it's important, Justice Seitz, to focus on the policy here. The policy here is we want to make sure the debtor knows what's going on so they can protect their interest, show up and bid if they're so inclined. In this circumstance, it's undisputed that Mr. Reeves did not receive the notice. It's undisputed, and this is in the transcript, that Ms. Hatchell, who worked for the plaintiff, knew that Mr. Reeves was separated. It's undisputed that the notice that was sent in this case was actually sent by plaintiff's law firm to Mr. Reeves directly, which was a departure from the previous correspondence they provided to Mr. Reeves' counsel. And so our position is... But can you see how you can say, well, but there was a notice, they did send it, so you can imagine a jury saying, you know what, it's reasonable. And we're looking at it and saying, is there more than a scintilla of evidence to get there? And it just seems like a tough argument to say there was not even a scintilla of evidence on reasonableness. Well, and, and our argument, Your Honor, is that there is no way that a reasonable jury could conclude that it was a reasonable process for liquidating this interest to depart from corresponding with counsel and start moving forward directly Notably, having a law firm, we're in Van Allen, draft documents that then go to an address where they know Mr. Reeves does not live. And so I think the analysis is a bit different. It is, was it commercially reasonable to do what they did? Did they provide commercially reasonable notice? Which is a, a bit of a different analysis than did they provide a little bit of notice or a scintilla of notice? Is, is what they did commercially reasonable? And, and we would say, for the reason that they departed from what would have been typical and customary, we expect, at least in this case, their communications through counsel, and sending the notice to an address that Mr. where they knew Mr. Reeves did not live, that was commercially unreasonable. We would also say, um, with respect to this, the only thing we've heard from the other side is that 
Ms. Hatchell, Janice Hatchell, who provided the notice address, looked at a K-1 that was some 14 or 16 months old and a life insurance policy from some undated amount. Um, and again, I think that the evidence, even taking the evidence in the light most favorable to the other side, as this court is, is bound to do, is that, that was, it was commercially unreasonable to take an address where you know Mr. Reeves did not live, to depart from the mechanism of communicating through counsel, which the parties have stipulated was happening, to have a law firm send a notice, and then the day after the sale, the day after, they put a phone call in to Mr. Reeves' trial counsel and say, your interest has been sold. We think on the record before the court, that is commercially unreasonable. Um, Related to that issue, um, what that would mean is that with respect to the verdict sheet, which is question 7A, questions 7B and 7C relate to this issue, the jury should not have considered question 7A. And had the jury not considered question 7A, then it would have become the burden on the plaintiff to move forward and show that the, the liquidated amount was, was reasonable. Um, Again, we think it's a fairly discreet issue, comes out of Article 9. We don't believe that the, the method was reasonable. Whether there was a scintilla of notice, the question is whether the notice was commercially reasonable. Um, but what, the scintilla, though, is because isn't our standard of review now whether there was more than a scintilla of evidence that would permit that jury to say it was commercially reasonable, to make that fact determination about reasonableness there? That is the standard and, of review. Yeah, I think we're going to hear from your friend you made some good arguments, but there was more than a scintilla because that's just a really low bar. I, I expect that is the argument that my, my, my friend, Mr. Nibri, will make. Um, and again, we don't believe in this circumstance where you have counsel, you're in active litigation, you're departing from the norm of communicating with counsel, that you are at all furthering the policy here of let's make sure the debtor knows what's going on. In fact, we would view this as it was actually designed to prevent Mr. Reeves from knowing what's going on because they knew how to get up with him. They called him the day after it happened. Um, and in light of that, we don't believe there should be a, a deficiency that should be in play. Um, let me progress to the second issue, uh, if I may, and that relates to the punitive damages award against Reeves and Associates. Um, on that point, our argument is, is fairly straightforward, and that is that as the jury was instructed, they were allowed to consider fraud or willful or wanton conduct in making an award of punitives against Reeves and Associates. The fundamental problem with that and the legal error with that is that the fraud claims, the facilitating fraud claims against Reeves and Associates were dismissed at the directed verdict stage. And so what ended up happening is the jury is instructed that they can consider fraud and not just fraud as to Reeves and Associates where a claim has been dismissed, but fraud as to Mr. Reeves without any division with, between the two to determine whether an award of punitive damages was proper. Um, we don't believe that is consistent with North Carolina law. Uh, we don't believe that the jury should properly have been allowed to consider fraud as it related to the firm. And I think it's important um, on this to, to know what we're talking about, which is principally the preparation of an S election tax document, which is in the record as trial exhibit 20, uh, document exhibit 173, which is a document that was signed by Mr. Reeves as the secretary and treasurer of Steel Tube, 
and signed by Avalon Potts, who is the president and 50% owner of Steel Creek. We think that causes a significant concern as to whether or not that was activity that was engaged in by Mr. Reeves as an officer of Steel Two, because that's an S election form. You don't have to have an accountant sign it, or whether that was instead an act engaged in by the firm. We don't think the, there's there's sufficient evidence to conclude that the S election was a firm generated document. One, two, the fraud issue I spoke to a minute ago, and then three, our third argument on punitive damages is. Under GS 1D-15, the punitive damages must uh, relate to a present fact and must be related to the claim for which they're being awarded. In this circumstance, given the instruction of fraud and given that we're talking about a tax form signed by an officer of the company, Mr. Reeves, and the plaintiff, Mr. Potts, the fact that the jury was allowed to award punitive damages against the firm for activities of Mr. Reeves, which is what the instructions say, runs afoul of GS 1D-15 requiring that punitive damages be related to the claim for which they are awarded. So the, the court could have given an instruction that allowed the jury to parse out the difference between being an officer and being an individual, right? Did, did you ask for that instruction? The, the preservation that trial counsel made uh, is reflected in the record at uh, 1306 through 1310 with the specific request that, and this is on item four on exhibit 2485, that in order to find Reeves and Associates liable for any act or omission, the plaintiff must prove, and it continues on, that he was acting as an employee and within the scope of his employment with Reeves and Associates. That was the request that was made, and and, that was and you view given. that as this as uh, that that at least that pr the Im implicitly that isn't already in the instruction. The idea that you would by being an officer you have you're not the individual. You're the you, you think it, you had to have that additional language in order for the jury to understand that. We do, and we think that the principal issue that relates to this is when you read the instruction, and I'm I'm looking at the instruction as it was provided to the jury, and this is an. Uh, record 1318, and I'm, I'm clipping out from a portion of the instruction. The trial court instructed, second, that the fraud or willful or wanton conduct was related to the injury to steel tube for which you have already awarded relief. That's the problematic instruction on this fraud issue because it invited the jury, and there's an objection to this, it invited the jury to take the actions of Mr. Reeves wholly unrelated to anything that Reeves and Associates did, whether it was a, a alleged inappropriate transactions, alleged employment agreements, but allowed the jury to consider those facts in awarding punitive damages against the, the firm, and those facts simply are not related. So again, our argument on the punitives is, is fairly straightforward. The instruction was, we believe, incorrect. Uh, there was an objection to it, and it invited the jury to effectively uh, improperly mesh conduct of Mr. Reeves and conduct of the firm. Um, progressing to the next item uh, on the list relates to damages generally. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about this in the briefs. I would simplify this as follows. Mr. Reagan, uh, who's an accountant, uh, testified for the plaintiffs at trial. Mr. Reagan, and this is important, testified that there were approximately $520,000 in what they'll call question transactions. 
And I want to pause for a second, and I think it bears mention that this is a conflict of interest case. In fact, the, the instructions that the trial court delivered in some 10 to 15 places instruct the court, instruct the jury about conflicts of interest and what a conflict of interest is. And this is contained in the record at 2502 through 2530, which is the jury instructions. The fact that it's a conflict of interest case means the transactions that are properly the subject of consideration for damages are necessarily conflict of interest transactions. Those are identified by Mr. Reagan in his testimony, which is contained in the record beginning at 849. Those transactions, and we talk about this in our brief, total approximately $519,000. And they consist of, and again, we've discussed this at length in our brief, I won't dive into the weeds at this moment unless the court would prefer, but that those consist of monthly payments to Mr. Reeves for $7,500, $20,000 payment for interest um, in steel tube, and related transactions where there is an argument that Mr. Reeves, as an officer of steel tube, was conflicted. And we refer to those as the question transactions, $519,000. The problem is the jury rendered a verdict of $1.2 million approximately on the constructive fraud, fiduciary duty, and conversion claim, and then $390,000 on the fraud claim for approximately $1.6 or $7 million. The only way the jury could have gotten to a number above the question transactions, again, in a conflict of interest case, is to have considered damages measurements that were not conflict of interest measurements. For example, one of the measurements that Mr. Reagan tendered was interest on borrowings that the company ultimately undertook. Now, Mr. Potts signed off on those. That's an issue of less importance for this court. But the fact of the matter is there is no connection between Mr. Reeves taking $519,000 out of this company, taking the facts in their favor, and the company borrowing $2.5 million and then assessing all of that interest to Mr. Reeves. But the jury had to have done that because there was no mathematical way to get from $519,000 to a number that's almost three times that. Similarly, Mr. Reagan purported to tender an opinion about diminution of value. Again, this is a conflict of interest case. That's the instructions. That was the argument. There's been a big deal made in some of the briefing about whether this is a case about mismanagement. There is not a case here about mismanagement. There were some questions when Mr. Reeves was asked about what he did and whether he did a good job. The diminution of value, i.e., you made my company worth less, is fundamentally a mismanagement damage. And there's not a rational or legal connection between you've engaged in $500,000 in allegedly improper transactions and you diminish the value of my company by three times that amount or required me to go borrow six times that amount. There is not a logical connection between those. And so the jury necessarily considered either interest that was improper or diminution of value that was improper. Or in addition, there was a, this employment agreement with a, a Mr. Lazenby for, where there, I, I think the alleged damages were approximately $95,000. 
That's not a conflict of interest transaction. And in fact, and we discussed this in our brief, Mr. Reagan was the, unable to articulate how that was actually a damage or how the plaintiff had actually been harmed. And so we think the damages analysis on this is very simple. And I would encourage the, the court, if it's looking for the, the best evidence on this, to look at the record beginning 849 to 856, where it speaks to how Mr. Reagan calculated the $519,000 and compare that to the numbers that are three or four times that amount in the verdict sheet. Um, there simply was not a mechanism for him to get there. Related to that, um, we've heard argument from the other side, and I expect we will this afternoon. Well, Mr. Reagan gave you less than you know, we asked for. That's true. The, the, the jury gave less than Mr. Reagan had, had put in his report. But the fact that Mr. Reagan provided a report that itself was too high and itself not legally connected to the actual damages doesn't mean that the fact that the jury awarded less than that is appropriate. His report being provided to the jury, which was objected to by trial counsel, was improper, and the consideration by the jury of interest, diminution of value, and damages relative to the employment agreement, wildly divorced from conflict of interest transactions, which is what they were instructed on, was improper and would warrant a new trial on that issue. Fourth and finally, um, with respect to the fraud claim against Mr. Reeves, uh, we've set our argument out at some length in the brief. Um, our view, and we think the Overstreet case that we cite is uh, persuasive on this issue, we simply think there was insufficient evidence for the jury to consider at trial whether or not Mr. Reeves, at the time he allegedly made promises to Mr. Potts, did not intend to keep them, which is the entire genesis of their fraud claim. Fundamentally, they say Mr. Reeves committed to not taking more than $25,000 from this company at any given time or making a transaction involving $25,000 at any given time uh, without notice to Mr. Potts and that he never intended to keep that promise. Well, as we've set out in our brief, the only facts that relate to that are down the road. Some months later, there's a trucking company set up. Uh, 10, 12 months later, there's an issue about this S election. You subsequently have an issue relative to um, uh, the tax treatment that they complain about, all of which is materially after the issues here, which is exactly what the court looked at in Overstreet and said, look, if, if you're going to come in and say that we should follow the exception to the rule, right? The exception to the rule is that I made a promise I didn't intend to keep and it can be fraud. That's the exception. Typically, that's a claim for breach of contract. As the court in Overstreet said, if we're going to go with that exception, there needs to be clear evidence that at the time you made the promise you didn't intend to keep it, that evidence simply isn't present here. Um, I see that I've got about seven minutes and 20 seconds left. Of course, happy to answer any questions the court have. Otherwise, I'll reserve the balance. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Please the court, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, Justices, my name is Mark Niebrig on behalf of Appellee's Steel Tube Inc. or STI and Avalon One. Where this case started with the pleadings and ended with the jury's verdict, 
and Judge Conrad's well-reasoned 52-page opinion and order denying appellant's post-judgment motions is this. Appellant Lynn Reeves identified one of appellant RNA's Reeves and Associates, the CPA firm, one of RNA's clients as a financial target, and then proceeded to execute an elaborate scheme to pillage STI of its assets for his own benefit. With his CPA firm, which if he was the managing partner, participating in and condoning this scheme through erroneous tax filings, created to conceal Reeves's conduct, and its other owners, allowing Reeves to execute such malfeasance against a client of RNA without the slightest oversight of such a glaring conflict of interest. Now, appellants threw everything against the wall at every stage of this case to avoid this outcome, and this appeal is more of the same, with the central theme being a re-argument of the evidence. And that ignores appellant's burden and the standard of review for issues on appeal. Now, I'll do my best to sequence my time to address counsel's argument, which I believe started with the UCC Article 9 commercially reasonable sale. And again, the standard being, is it, was there more than a scintilla of evidence that a jury could find that the commercial, the sale was commercially reasonable? And again, it goes back to, I guess, the re-arguing or the repackaging of evidence that was presented to the jury and fully argued at trial and in post-judgment briefings. There's really no legal basis to overturn the jury and the court other than saying, we're right and they were wrong. But there is more than a mere scintilla of evidence on this issue. Reeves's Davidson County address at Lazy Oak Lane is not only his last known address to STI, but the only address known by STI. Reeves knew that STI's records established his residence in Davidson County at the Lazy Oak Lane address. He put that on the company's life insurance for himself, and his firm, RNA, put that on the K-1 for STI. And then he admitted that he resided in Davidson County only one month before notice was sent to this last known address. His new address was not in Davidson County. He at no time notified SDI that he had changed his address. And at best, there is, a, there is conflicting evidence that some people at STI heard through the grapevine that he had separated from his wife, nothing more. Not that he had moved, not that she had kicked him out. The notice that Reeves received at the last known address was never returned to STI or Avalon 1, with zero indication that Mr. Reeves did not receive the notice before the sale. We cited a North Carolina bankruptcy court from the Middle District in Ray Marshall, which talks about other cases, and then those where notice was found to be reasonable, the secured creditor knew the debtor had vacated the address when they sent that notice. And the notices were returned as undeliverable. Still, in those factual situations, it was not disturbed that that was a reasonable notice from a commercial standpoint under an Article 9 type sale. Now, what we're really asked to do, or at least what you're asked to do by appellant in this case, is to take on the role of the General Assembly and rewrite the statute 
and require notice to be sent to counsel for a debtor in order for that to comply with the state statute's notification requirement. We believe that's improper, it's unnecessary. The statute's unambiguous. 25-9611 requires notice to be sent to the debtor. Specifically, notification is required by statute and quote, to comply with this notification requirement, the secured party shall send an authenticated notifi notification of disposition to the debtor. So if Avalon One had sent notice to Mr. Reeves' last known address, had not sent notice to Mr. Reeves' last known address, but instead sent it to his representatives, Avalon One would not have complied with the statute as written. And I'll also note that the statute sets forth that where to send the notice is, quote, to any address reasonable under the circumstances. That's at 25-9-102, paragraph 77, excuse me, parenthesis 77. The last known address of the debtor, the only known address of Mr. Reeves, was a Lazy Oak Lane address. This is precisely what Apelli did here, confirmed by the jury and the judge as a reasonable address after hearing all of the same evidence and arguments from appellant's lawyers that we heard just now. Now, if we move to the punitive damages issue, the, there are really two issues related to appellant's uh, reason associates punitive damages argument. First, was there more than a scintilla of evidence to allow the jury to consider a punitive damages award against RNA? And second, whether the court abused its discretion in allowing the jury instructions for punitive damages to include fraud among the possible aggravating factors. And did that inclusion then likely mislead the jury? Now this second question can be disposed of in short order because appellants failed to object to the punitive damages instruction as to RNA other than reiterating its general objection that RNA should not be subject to punitive damages. For the punitive damages instruction itself, appellants did not see but a special Do you concede that there was a proposed instruction that would have addressed the argument that we're hearing now on appeal and that the court chose not to give that instruction? Uh, there was not. The only, there was not a proposed instruction as to RNA for a punitive damages award. They simply said RNA should not be included at all in the instruction. At the compensatory damages phase, there was a special instruction requested as it relates to the agency versus uh, Rees on his own behalf situation. And in that situation, the judge actually provided an agency instruction in the compensatory damages phase. Actually, that was at 2521 in the record. And the judge threw two paragraphs to tie explain to the jury how the defendant may be liable for its own negligence, but also liable for the negligence of its agents. And he went through the agency instruction in the compensatory damages phase. And when you look at a punitive damage instruction and you look at whether or not that the instructions misled the jury, the guidance is that you look at the total instructions. The other interesting point of it is in the actual punitive damages instruction itself as it relates to RNA, there are two separate paragraphs, one related to Reeves and one related to RNA. The judge instructed, quote, as to Reeves, the third thing Potts must prove is that Reeves participated in the fraud or willful or wanton conduct. 
As to reason associates, the third thing Potts must prove is that the officers, directors, or managers of reason associates participated in or condoned the fraud or willful or wanton conduct. This jury was properly instructed as to RNA and punitive damages. We know that also because the court followed the pattern jury instructions for punitive damages, which are encouraged in this case, excuse me, in this state. And to change kind of our jurisprudence in North Carolina to say if, if you don't have a finding of fraud, you can't include fraud as an aggravating factor in a punitive damages instruction is unfounded in the cases. There have been cases where there's been a breach of contract and no fraud finding where fraud was included as an aggravated, aggravating uh, factor in a punitive damages case. And I want to note that, again, Reason Associates was never found not to have committed fraud in this case. At directed verdict, Judge Conrad dismissed the facilitation of fraud case against Reason Associates, which is not fraud. And the basis for Judge Conrad's granting of that directed verdict is because there wasn't evidence of a requisite agreement between Reeves, the fraudster, and RNA, the facilitator. So there was no finding that RNA did not commit fraud. There was no claim against RNA for fraud. So this corollary of if there is no fraud finding, there can be no fraud instruction, does not fit the facts and the, and the, uh, and the, and the results in this particular case. And let's assume they preserve the issue. Let's assume that they shouldn't, and let's also assume that Judge Conrad abused his discretion through his phraseology of putting fraud into the RNA punitive <coughs> instruction. They've not adequately demonstrated that that error, in light of the entire charge, likely misled the jury, which is the State v. Smith standard as it relates to whether or not you're going to overturn a decision based on an instruction. And in this case, again, with the totality of the situation and what this jury was instructed upon and the words in the, in the instructions to say that it was likely misled the jury, actually it's more likely that it did not mislead the jury. Now, was there more than a scintilla of evidence for the, for the punitive damages issue to actually go to the jury? Again, I think Bab v. Graham is specific in describing that analysis that, quote, so long as there is some fact or circumstance in evidence from which one of these elements may be inferred, the question of punitive damages is for the jury and not for the court, close quote. And that is exactly what Judge Conrad did in his analysis when they asked or they moved for directed verdict at that stage. He went through the analysis citing much more than a scintilla of evidence to justify taking this matter to, excuse me, of punitive damages to the jury for RNA. He went through the analysis and the facts that here the 48% managing partner, Appellant Reeves, had an ownership interest in a tax client, STI. RNA then represented to the federal government under penalty that the fraudulent 2015 tax filing was prepared by Reeves & Associates and its other 48% owner, Leon Reeves Sr., not the appellant here. That the fraudulent findings were reviewed by RNA's only other owner, Mr. John Parsley. That the fraudulent tax filings were prepared on RNA systems, on its branded documents, and submitted to its client, STI, representing that that fraudulent tax document was prepared by RNA. That the only three owners of RNA, 
Appellant Rees, Leon Rees, and John Parsley not only participated in the preparation and filing of the fraudulent tax documents, but for in, these were the, the only individuals responsible for establishing even the most basic guardrails of professional responsibility related to conflicts of interest inherent in tax work for clients in which one of the firm's owners had an ownership interest. Now to say that not one of all of these evidentiary factors or circumstances that I've just described could not possibly allow a jury to infer any of the elements of fraud or willful or wanton conduct to go to a punitive damages uh, consideration by the jury is ignoring the evidence and is frankly fantastical. And let's remember that it is one of the three elements, fraud or wanton or willful conduct. And an act is wanton when done manifesting a reckless indifference to the rights of others, which is exactly what RNA did here. And an act is willful where there is a deliberate purpose not to discharge a duty necessary for the safety of property of others. That necessary duty is to make sure that our managing partner who owns half of this company is not committing fraud in these tax documents. And RNA put themselves into that situation by reviewing and preparing and filing those documents, which is more than participating in or condoning an act of fraud or fraudulent conduct. Now we go to the Reeves' damage with Mr. Reagan's testimony. And it's interesting about where the standard of review is here on these Rule 59 motions um, related to this, these damages con conversations because uh, the rulings and decisions related to the testimony of the accounting and financial expert Greg Reagan appear to be solely within the confines of claimed error by the trial court in making discretionary rulings to allow these subject testimony on these issues to go to the jury for consideration or overturn their verdict for insufficiency of evidence. Those are not under Rule 59A8 errors of law. Those are in the other areas of Rule 59, which would be A1, A6, and A7, all of which are subject to abuse of discretion review by this court. If you look at the Justice v. Rosner case uh, from 2018 from this court, it does delineate how under Rule 59, looking at those 10 different, uh, I guess, bases for bringing those to these types of new trial requests, that the non-Rule A8 cases should be judged or at least reviewed from abusive discretion. So what you have to then say is, did Judge Conrad abuse his discretion in allowing these other elements of damage to be testified to and presented to the jury by Mr. Reagan? Let's remember, Lynn Re Leon Reeves, excuse me, Appellant Reeves committed fraud and breached his fiduciary duty to SDI. Mr. Reagan provided competent, extensive testimony of how Reeves' systematic misconduct for well over a year and a half impacted and harmed STI. Mr. Reagan was uniquely qualified to explain to the jury the impact of this misconduct. He had been a CPA for over 40 years, a credentialed forensic accountant, 25 years as a certified fraud examiner, and 25 years as a certified valuation analyst. His testimony was unrebutted. There was no other expert, no other expert testimony, no other financial analysis that rebutted Mr. Reagan's uh, testimony and findings and opinions in this case. 
We simply heard the same arguments that we've heard today and the same effort by counsel for the appellants to try to discredit Mr. Reagan or to claim that he was double counting or that he was including in his damages something that was uncorrelated to Mr. Reeves' misconduct. And what Mr. Reagan did in response was to draw the exact lines through the dots for the jury, which experts are to do to say, this is the misconduct, but this is what, it, what, caused, what, what happens when people do this. If you steal over a half a million dollars, it's not a dollar for dollar damage to that company. What it does is, in this case, particularly a manufacturing company like a, like a steel tube that has to buy so many raw materials, has to build out all of these orders before they're, and then ship them out and wait to get paid. The lifeblood of this company is working capital, and by stealing that money, what Mr. Reagan competently testified to is this is what that means when you deplete working capital. This is what this means when you take the lifeblood from a company. It's not a dollar for dollar damage. But for this misconduct, you would not have had a depletion of working capital. You would have not have had a need to basically lose your line of credit and have to borrow money in order to stay in business. He said due to this misconduct, STI was insolvent. So to somehow say that, gosh, this is just a half million dollar conflict of interest case is ignoring the evidence, is ignoring our claims, and it basically ignores Mr. Reagan's expert unrebutted opinion. They didn't even depose him in this case. On the loan interest, Mr. Reagan demonstrated that but for Mr. Reed's misconduct, STI would not have needed to borrow that money. Thereby, it would not have had to pay the interest on those unnecessary borrowings. And the fact that Mr. Rees provided a cooked set of books in order to justify why his numbers are correct, again, almost is, shows the misconduct by trying to discredit Mr. Reagan. Look, here's what the books say. Mr. Reagan said, no, those are the books that Mr. Reeves altered and modified to conceal his fraud. So as I look at the concealment of the fraud issue, what it goes back to then is, all right, does Mr. Reagan talk about working capital in a way that it makes sense? Yes. Did he talk about how that depletion, what that impacted uh, SDI for? Did he look at other factors in the industry and in the steel business to say, was there something else that caused this? He did his work. He showed his work. He explained his work to the jury with Judge Conrad sitting right there as the gatekeeper. And it went to the jury, and what they did is to say, yeah, we agree with that. And so when we're looking at the jury verdict and we're looking at what they awarded, it's important for us to understand that it is just a guess that the jury is somehow double counting or that they are somehow taking a, a damage that is unrelated to Mr. Reed's conduct in order to award a breach of fiduciary duty damages of over $1.2 million and a fraud claim of $390,000. It is crucial that the jury did not award over a half million dollars of what we asked for in this analysis. What it does is it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't do the math for them. But what it tells you is that this jury considered the evidence, considered the numbers, and made a calculated what they're, they, they discharged their duty. There was a question from the jury during their deliberations where they said, quote, please be patient with us. There are a lot of 
numbers in this case, big numbers, and we want to make sure we get it correct. That came from the jury during deliberation. That's the process working in this case. In a North Carolina business court case with a North Carolina business court judge that is making sure that we are going through our paces as litigants, the jury then took that seriously. They were engaged, and then in deliberations, they looked at the, these issues, these numbers, these big numbers, and said, be patient with us. We want to make sure they're correct. Now, I can do a calculation of their verdict and tell you why it's not double counting. I don't, I'm happy to do it. I think it's more likely that they did not double count. It is not clear that they double counted. Again, that reduction of the half million dollars, you have to understand that Mr. Reagan's testimony about diminution in value was about the diminution in two different parts of the life of STI. The part where Mr. Rees was, was basically conducting his malfeasance while he was at STI, and then the seven months after he fled STI, after he was confronted, that had the residual compounding effect of diminution in value. And that's $650,000 and $660,000 as a difference. And so what the jury looked at was to say, he got over a half million dollars of these direct damages while he was there. That doesn't mean that the full diminution in value is fully impacted. It should just be subtracted from the 512. They looked at that as it relates to during the time he was there. And if you do the math and you do the right calculations as they did, it makes perfect sense why they came to $390,000 for the fraud claim and $1.285 for the breach of fiduciary duty. It is not double counting, and it hasn't been shown to be double counting. And it certainly has not been shown to the point where, we, where this court says there was an abuse of discretion and then that the jury got it wrong and we're going to substitute our judgment for the jury and the trial courts. The last issue was Reeves's fraud. And Again, I'm, I've, if it wasn't for the, how um, discouraging his conduct was, I would crow about my embarrassment of riches as opposed to a mere scintilla of evidence, which is the standard here for this jury to have found that Lynn Reeves committed fraud. Now, he makes a promise, and the jury needs to determine, did he have an intent to deceive at the time he made that promise? And that promise was not to make material dispositions of STI assets or spend $25,000 or more or take a distribution from STI without Potts' agreement. And to say that there's not a mere scintilla of evidence that that was his intent was to deceive when he made that promise, those promises ignores the testimony and each witness's credibility and veracity, which was judged by these 12 citizens. I think the Hudgens v. Wagner case is informative on promissory misrepresentation as fraud. Lynn Rees pilfered hundreds of thousands of dollars from STI. Over a month before his promissory misrepresentation, Lynn Rees embarked upon and began his concealing his scheme. That scheme is to pillage STI's assets. The very same day he made his promise to Mr. Potts, he drove to the bank, walked up to the counter, and took his first $7,500 from STI's bank account. He did that each month for the next 16 months. Within a month after his promise, he took 
out of STI's account and sent it to Roy Lazenby to pay for his debt. A month or so later, he took $120,000 out and then continued to take more money out, pilfer STI's credit and its equipment. His pre-promise scheme stripped assets of STI was to pay for his $600,000 debt to acquire the shares of STI with unauthorized results. What he did was say, I'm gonna buy it in January, he said I'm gonna buy it for 600 grand and I'm gonna use STI's money to pay for it. And he promised Mr. Potts a month later that he wasn't gonna do that. For this jury to not infer or to not to believe that he had an intent to, de to deceive when he made that promise is to ignore what happened in this case. And the February promise isn't the only fraud committed by Lynn Rees. At the time he told Mr. Potts that he would not take a distribution from STI for 2015 taxes, he had already taken over 62,000 in a distribution two days before he said he wasn't gonna do it. And your honors, that set of facts, establishing an intent to defraud at the time of the misrepresentation, that set of facts was made, was entirely admitted to by Lynn Rees in his testimony. It's not in dispute. The jury saw the receipts, they saw the denials, the impact, but they also heard from Mr. Rees on the stand and measured his credibility and veracity in determining his intent to deceive. I think the Erskine v. Chevrolet Motors case advises that, quote, intent is always a question for the jury. And Lada v. Rainey says whether a defendant acts with a requisite scienter for fraud is a question for the jury. With the overwhelming evidence in support, this jury answered that question, Mr. Reeves committed fraud. And Judge Conrad noted myriad additional evidence supporting the fraud verdict in his order denying the DV and the JNOV on this issue, citing, quote, ample evidence, including evidence of concealment, evasion, and ulterior motives. There was no basis for the trial court not to let the fraud go to the jury, nor to disturb the jury's verdict, finding that Mr. Reeves committed fraud. Appellant submitted affirmance certainly is warranted on that fraud claim. You know, the, the North Carolina Business Court is, is a sophisticated, it's a robust forum for adjudicating complex business cases, valuation cases, damages cases in this state, there can be little argument that any party in this matter did not fully take advantage of this specialized forum from Rule 12 to summary judgment to motions in limine to directed verdict to post-trial motions. And ultimately, a jury of 12 engaged citizens with Judge Conrad as the gatekeeper sat in judgment of Lynn Rees and Rees and Associates this court and those who litigate in the North Carolina business courts should be confident that this process took place as intended and there is no need to disturb what happened in that process. For all issues on appeal, respectfully, affirmance is warranted. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, uh, Chief Justice Newby. I will uh, address the items uh, in turn uh, that Mr. Niebrig raised. On the UCC issue, I will not repeat what I said earlier, other than to note that, that aside from being 
<clears throat> commercially reasonable, which is what our statutes require. I think the inference in this case is that the notice was given in such a way so as not to make Mr. Reeves aware that his shares were being liquidated. Indeed, if they had wanted to contact him, they knew how to find him. They knew his address. They knew his counsel. They had been in contact with his counsel. They called him the day after the sale and said, your shares have been sold. That is not commercial reasonableness. That is an intentional effort to avoid notifying a debtor. If we want to look at whether or not that was material to the jury or not, and I have the verdict sheet here in front of me, I'm looking at pages 2534 and 2535, issue 7A, which I touched on earlier. Did Avalon 1 send Reeves a reasonable notification of the public sale of Reeves shares? The jury said yes. They answered the next question about commercially reasonable manner, yes. And then interestingly, question 7C, what amount of deficiency, if any, would have resulted had Avalon 1 disposed of Reeves shares in a commercially reasonable manner? So if Avalon had done the right thing, what would the deficiency have been? And what did the jury say? Zero. So if we want to understand whether or not the issue was important and what the jury actually viewed as the conduct of, of the other side, I think we can look at, at how they answered question 7C, where they determined that if there had been a reasonable commercial liquidation, there would have been no deficiency. Again, we think it was intended to not notify Mr. Reeves. Second, on damages generally. Council suggests that we have to guess whether the jury got it right and suggests that the fact that the jury awarded less than they asked for necessarily means the damages award should be affirmed. But we don't have to guess about what the jury did. I'm looking at page 852 of the record, and this is the direct examination of plaintiff's expert, Mr. Reagan, by plaintiff's counsel. And they categorize in the pages that follow the damages that are the question transactions in a conflict of interest case. And Mr. Reagan is asked as follows. And so for those in that particular bucket for the Reeves transactions, what's the total there? $519,511. That's what their expert said was the damage associated with the conflict of interest transactions. And if the court compares the testimony of their expert on those pages, pages 852 and the four pages that preceded, to the transactions that are contained in the verdict sheet, at page 2533, it's the identical transactions. So we don't have to guess what Mr. Reagan calculated the conflict of interest transactions to be. We don't have to guess what the jury was given on their verdict sheet for those to be. And we don't have to guess what the jury was told about the damages it was going to look at because we have the jury instructions beginning on page 2511 where the jury is charged, in this case, Potts contends and Reeves denies 
that Reeves failed to discharge his duties as director and officer of Steel Tube by engaging in transactions known as conflict of interest transactions. That's what the jury was told the allegations of misconduct were. Judge Conrad then defined a conflict of interest transaction and over the next three to four pages before getting into the meat of the charge tells the jury that the harm they're looking at is conflict of interest transactions. $519,000 as categorized in the verdict sheet. Yet, the jury comes up with numbers that total 1.6. We don't have to guess about the 519, and we don't have to guess. We know that the jury necessarily considered interest unrelated to these transactions, diminution unrelated to these transactions, and that was improper. <clears throat> with respect to uh, the firm, I won't repeat the argument I made previously other than to return the court's attention to the jury instruction, which lumps the firm and Mr. Reeves together, and which includes fraud as an element the jury should consider in awarding damages as to the firm. There is no fraud claim in this case against the firm. The facilitating fraud claim was dismissed. What happened by virtue of that instruction is that the jury married the conduct that Mr. Reeves engaged in as an officer of STI and the preparation of tax returns by the accounting firm that caused $40,000 in alleged damages and put them together to support the award of punitive damages against the firm because that's what they were erroneously told to do. Undoubtedly, the business court's a sophisticated court, but so is this court. And this court sits in a position to recognize that there's a material issue with respect to the way the damages were addressed. There was material issue, and I would suggest gamesmanship with respect to the way the notice was given as to the shares. And there was an erroneous instruction that was objected to with respect to the punitive damages against the firm. Appreciate your time today. We thank you for having us from Greensboro and Mr. Nabrig and Mr. Shook from Charlotte. I'm certainly happy to answer any further questions in the 32 seconds I have remaining. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Thank you, everyone. Clerk.